Hello. I guess it's a long time later to be telling you about this. I kept thinking about it over the years, and my son and I would reminisce about it now and then. But then we would get distracted, and life goes on. I guess we just thought that so many people reported the event that we would just be two more of many. I'm retired now and saw something on TV yesterday that jogged my memory about it. At approximately 9.30 p.m. that night, I was driving on the I-17 from Union Hills to the Peoria exit. I remember the time because it was a school night and I wanted to get home before 10. My 10-year-old son was in the front passenger seat. Around the Thunderbird exit area, we suddenly noticed V-shaped lights in the sky in front of us. We both noticed it at the same time. We had no idea what it could possibly be and kept saying, What is that? What could it be? Then the lights completely disappeared. The lights reappeared immediately in a new location closer to us. The way it moved was not like anything I'd ever seen before. It was impossibly fast. Then it disappeared again. After that, a gigantic craft was above us on the right. It seemed to come out of nowhere. We did not see it materialize, but calmly observed it as just being there. It came even lower and closer towards us until we could see it very clearly. My son rolled the window down, and we discovered the craft made no noise at all. There were lights all around the outlining of the bottom of the V-shaped craft, and they rotated horizontally. It looked more rounded and dome-shaped at this point. We kept driving and looking at it as carefully as we could in order to figure out what it was. There were what appeared to be small windows going horizontally along the middle of the craft. It reminded me of an observation area. And it looked like there were lots of people inside looking down onto the freeway at our location. They seemed to be milling around inside. I could not see any clear features, just shadows of what looked like people. These people-like shadows had body language that seemed relaxed as if they were at a nice function or a cocktail party. I kept trying to think of what company could possibly have access to a craft like that and take a bunch of people up in it. We felt very excited and happy to be seeing this. We just kept saying, oh my god, this is amazing, I can't believe this. I looked around to the car in the left lane from ours, but those people didn't seem to be looking in that direction. Then I just concentrated on the craft and catching any other details I could remember. I wish I could remember more about the color. I'm pretty sure it was a light color. It was very easy to see it clearly. After approximately 10 minutes, it started moving across the freeway and we couldn't see any more of it. We were under it at that point, and I remember thinking I would turn on the 10 p.m. news to see if anyone had called in about seeing it. We rushed inside to tell my husband about it. He thought we were being rather giddy, and it was definitely on the news that week. It felt good that others had seen something also, and it occurred to us the next day that we felt very peaceful and safe during the whole event. I'm usually a slightly anxious person about anything of that nature, but I only remember a feeling of awe and calmness. I remember thinking it was that craft that gave us that feeling.
Welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Foran. From cryptozoology, ufology, and the paranormal, to legends, forbidden history, and more. Listen in and explore the world of the weird and unexplained. Join me as I look into strange and fascinating tales and unearth the truths and theories behind some of the world's greatest mysteries. Be sure to head on over to our HQ, strangeology.com, where you can check out our blog, episodes archive, gift shop, and so much more. Now sit back, relax, and join me as we get weird. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Strangeology Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you all dug that little intro piece. Uh, the story we're talking about today is a very big one, and uh, I thought it would be appropriate to kind of introduce it with uh, some witness testimony. But I hope everyone out there is doing all right and enjoying the increasing warmer weather as we get into spring. If you're coming out of winter and not going into it, depending on where you are out there. Uh, I don't have too many announcements uh, at the beginning here since I've just been straight up busy the past couple of weeks. I did just design and release a brand new merch design, which features the Roswell UFO crash, at least a fun interpretation. Uh, I thought of it anyway, and it's got kind of like this old vintage postcard vibe. So definitely head over to my shop and check it out if you like aliens and UFOs. I, I do have a few other uh, designs in that category, but uh, this is definitely my my favorite one I've done so far. Uh, I've got it on shirts, tank tops, long sleeves, stickers, postcards, um, and yeah, just uh, check it out. And I had mentioned last episode that I was doing a giveaway, which I announced the day I released the design over on Instagram, and uh, one lucky person got to win a shirt with that design on it. And that's a good reason to follow me over on Instagram if you haven't yet, because uh, you never know when I'm going to do a merch giveaway. Uh, I'm planning on doing uh, a big one pretty soon uh, over over there as I approach 5,000 uh, followers, which, so yeah, just stay tuned for that. Give me a follow over there. <laughs> Helps me out a lot, you know? Uh, also, uh, official announcement, I'm going to be vending at CryptidCon 2 this year, which is taking place in Morgantown, West Virginia at the Morgantown Art Party on Saturday, August 6th. This is uh, an event that's hosted by the Moth Boys podcast and Last year was an incredible time, a uh, great experience for my first time ever vending at, a, at an event, and this year it sounds like they are expecting it to be bigger and better, uh, more vendors, more people, uh, lots more going on. So if you like going to cryptid festivals and are nearby, or hell, even if you like to travel long distances to these kinds of things, it's definitely one you don't want to miss. And uh, the the event is free. It's all ages. Uh, and there's going to be so many awesome other vendors there as well. They they have a Facebook page up with uh, the event info. So you can just search for it there. 
I'll probably put the the link in the show notes as well, uh, just to make it easy. Uh, but you should be able to find it and uh, just check in every now and then for updates. They'll do profiles on all the different people vending uh, and other events that they have planned for that day. I've got a few other events that I am planning to do this year, uh, but I can't quite announce those yet. Um, but stay tuned on that front. And that's it for updates for now. So today's episode is all about the Phoenix Lights incident. And there's more to it than you might think. So why don't we just jump into it since there is a lot to cover. So last Sunday, March 13th, just marked the 25th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights incident, which most people consider to be the biggest or one of the biggest UFO cases out there, uh, second only to the Roswell case, according to the late Art Bell. Uh, I was 13 when this event happened, but I, I don't remember hearing about it right away. This was uh, this was a time when I was definitely invested in watching any kind of UFO or alien related show that was on TV, whether it was like Discovery Channel, Sci-Fi Channel, uh, whenever, you know, there was something on about them. I just ate that stuff up. And while I'm sure there was some coverage of it in the news shortly after, I think it was a little while before I finally heard or read about the incident. And the 90s was a big time for the the alien and UFO stuff in pop culture. 1997, the year that this incident took place, was kind of a wild year. Uh, the Hale-Bopp comet, if anyone out there remembers that, passed by Earth around this same time, and it was it was visible in the night sky for most of March and April of that year. And I remember going out on the deck uh, in the backside of the house I grew up in, and I had this... Uh, cheap telescope that I'd go, go check it out and try and see some stuff. Uh, And it was, it was really cool to see, you know, it's a once in a lifetime thing. And you know, then there's, there's also the, the heaven's gate cult in 1997 that believed that there was a UFO trailing behind the comet. And then the cult went Jonestown because they thought that, you know, the UFO was going to take them up into the promised land. And uh, Independence Day was only like a year old at that point, and the next movie Will Smith was going to be in was the Men in Black movie with Tommy Lee Jones, and obviously that was all about the alien presence on Earth, and <laughs> and there's all sorts of TV specials and talk about Area 51 and trying to get disclosure and acknowledgement from the government on its existence. Uh, X-Files was at its peak during its original run. The show Dark Skies had this limited uh, one-season run, which, in case you never saw it, it was a show that took place in the 1960s, and it was all about uh, the Majestic 12 and the government cover-up of aliens, and it was this this uh, investigator. I think he was with the FBI Uh, and he was investigating all this alien stuff. And then he had this partner who was played by, uh, Jerry Ryan, who was kind of like the, (laughs) the scully to his molder 
in a, in a sense, but she was kind of working with the bad guys, I think, and trying to keep them off the trail. Uh, and that's where she got her start. And if you're a Star Trek fan, you know, she's the actress that also played seven of nine in Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> my nerd, my nerd is showing a little bit, sorry. Uh, but this was, this was a time when the internet was still in its infancy. So people got their news and information from TV, newspapers, libraries. I didn't even have the internet until 1998. And back then it was AOL online <laughs> On a 14.4K modem, <laughs> you, you all remember the sound. Uh, I know a lot of you out there remember those days. <laughs> uh, we didn't have things like Reddit, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, the constant news cycle, or at least the news wasn't as intense in the constant onslaught uh, that it is today. Information about UFOs and aliens was typically reserved to message boards and old crappy GeoCities sites and other dark corners of the web. And you sometimes had to dig a bit to find out about that kind of stuff. Interestingly, my own experience seeing a triangle UFO, which I've talked about several times, or at least mentioned it on this show and other shows I've been on, uh, also happened in 1997 around a month or so after the Phoenix Lights incident in April. So it seems like this period of time was a little bit more active for people seeing weird lights in the sky. Maybe it was connected or maybe it was just coincidence. Uh, so yeah, that's enough of my nostalgic rambling. So if you're not familiar with the story of the Phoenix Lights, the, the brief overview is that on March 13th, 1997, between the hours of 7 and 10.30 p.m., roughly, as many as 20,000 people throughout the states of Nevada and Arizona and all the way to Sonora, Mexico, reported seeing this bizarre and unearthly craft in the sky that had this series of lights on it, and it was traveling in a southerly direction. In addition to the UFO reports, there was a secondary event of lights in the sky that took place right near the city of Phoenix. And that part is kind of the more well-known aspect of this mass sighting, at least in, in pop culture. I feel like the, the craft that was actually traveling over Nevada and Arizona and into Mexico isn't as talked about. You're probably familiar with the image of this arc-like formation of lights hovering in the night sky just over the mountain range to the south of Phoenix. And that's kind of like one of the, the main images of it. Uh, and this part of the story got a lot of media coverage along with government response and ridicule. But I'll touch on that part a little later because I first want to talk about the UFO or UFOs, there may have been multiple that were traveling over Nevada and Arizona and into another country on that same night. This event and the witness testimony that followed has inspired books, documentaries, 
Uh, even a, uh, a found footage alien horror film that came out a few years ago in 2015, which was loosely based on the story. And it seems like that kind of uh, it pissed off a few of the uh, the witnesses uh, and uh, older folks that <laughs> weren't weren't into like over dramatization of what happened. <laughs> I haven't watched it, but I read it. There's mixed reviews. Anyway, let's talk about what was seen that night. The objects that witnesses reported that night have some varying descriptions. You know, people's memories can become fuzzy over time and details can be added in by the mind that may not have been there. Uh, But that said, the overwhelming consensus is that the lights people were seeing traveling over their towns and neighborhoods belonged to an unidentified flying object for lack of a better term. Some think there may have been multiple craft based on witness accounts of different light formations and shapes of the craft, but most described seeing an enormous V-shaped chevron-like craft that had a series of somewhere between five and seven lights on its forward leading edge that appeared like these recessed canister lights that you would find in a ceiling or in a swimming pool. The bottom portion of the craft was also frequently described as looking like it was underwater, like it had this undulating effect to it. Almost like there was kind of like this energy field. Others have also described it as a black triangle or even a boomerang-shaped craft that was anywhere from one to two miles wide. So when people say... It was a big craft. They're talking enormous. People were seeing something that was literally blocking out the entire sky from their perspective on the ground. And, you know, coming out of like 1996 when Independence Day came out and there's these big city destroyer ships that block out the whole sky. If anyone saw that movie and they're out in the desert seeing this gigantic craft passing by overhead, that would kind of freak freak me out at least. Uh <laughs> So the first report of one of these V-shaped craft happened at 6.55 p.m. by a resident of Henderson, Nevada, which is just southeast of Las Vegas. So this is in a major metropolitan area. The man who called in described an object about the size of a 747 jet, which has a wingspan of about 195 feet. So... Definitely smaller than one to two miles, but still not a small craft by any means. I mean, a 747 is like this. It takes the second or third place of the largest commercial airliners in service today, I believe. Uh, And interestingly, this witness also described the object kind of sounding like a, a rushing wind as it passed overhead, which that's a different sound than what a jet engine makes. Even you, you hear planes flying overhead when they're at cruising altitude and you can still hear the jet, the roar of the jet engine. That doesn't sound like rushing wind. And another interesting thing is that most people that witnessed this didn't report hearing any sound from the V-shaped object at all. And it was also traveling fairly low to the ground, so you'd think you'd hear something. The next witness was a former police officer from Paulden, Arizona, 
uh, just a little bit north of the Prescott Valley area around 8.15 p.m. He had just left his house and was driving north when he saw this cluster of lights off in the distance in the sky that had this kind of orange-red hue to them. He said that there were five lights total that he saw. Four of them were together in a row, and then there was a fifth one that kind of seemed to be trailing behind the other four, which is different than the V-shape. But we'll find out that many of the sightings usually have all these lights together, uh, but it is interesting to note that in UFO lore, a lot of sightings have witnesses who will see these formations of lights that seem to be part of the same object, but then they somehow split off from, from the main object or just kind of transform. Like maybe they're drones or there's some kind of mothership or maybe there's just some technology involved that's so advanced that we don't understand how it works. There's that saying that a significantly advanced enough technology would be indistinguishable from magic from our perspective. And then the sightings just kept moving south. When the craft passed over the Prescott Valley area soon after, residents began calling into the authorities and reporting seeing this object and that it looked like it was one solid craft as it blocked out all of the stars in the night sky above. And other witnesses like Devin Lorenz and his aunt happened to be standing outside on the porch of their home that night and claimed to see these reddish lights in a triangle pattern, but the leading light at the nose or the angled part of the object was distinctly white, which is interesting. And they observed the formation for a few minutes with binoculars until it disappeared over the horizon. One of the reports that came into the National UFO Reporting Center that night had a witness describing five yellow to white lights in a V formation that were moving slowly and methodically from northwest to the southeast. And there's a ton of these reports of people seeing this V-shaped object with these lights on it flying low to the ground and way too slow to be an airplane. With that many witnesses seeing the same thing and not being connected to and knowing each other and all reporting it, I would say that Beyond a reasonable doubt, there was something unidentified flying over the skies of Nevada and Arizona that night. So at this point, it's around 8.30 p.m., and the object, or at least one of them, if there were multiple, since we, we've seen a few different descriptions of colors of lights and, and how they're formed and aligned to each other, at least one of them arrived in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And one set of witnesses, uh, the Lay family, noticed the lights off towards the Prescott area. That's where they were coming from. And they appeared as five distinct lights in this arc shape at first, but they realized that these lights were getting closer and closer and looking bigger in the sky as time went on. And within 10 minutes, they were able to tell that these lights were in this V-shaped formation, like so many of these other witness accounts and even described it as looking like this 60 degree carpenter square with five lights built into it. And the craft got closer and closer and it seemed to be on a path 
that would go right over their street. And sure enough, it eventually did. And it was right on top of them, just traveling really slow. And this massive craft was so low to the ground that it was apparently only 100 to 150 feet above them. Now, that's ridiculously low for any kind of aircraft to be flying, except maybe like a small stunt plane, I would think. I'm not an aeronautics expert, uh, but I'm pretty sure that planes the size of 747s or something larger, like a mile wide craft, which we don't have anything that big, uh, they don't fly that low to the ground over residential areas unless it's landing at an airport. Uh, and also go so slow that they appear like they're just hovering stationary in the sky until you kind of focus on it for a minute or two and notice that it's actually moving. Uh, whatever these people saw definitely doesn't sound like a plane to me or any other kind of conventional aircraft that we have. So eventually this object passed by and headed towards Squaw Peak which has since been renamed to Pestua Peak uh, and the greater Phoenix area. Now, this was around the time that the second event began. And this pretty much is, you know, the image of what most stories use covering the Phoenix lights. It's the arc of about nine or so lights on the southern edge of the city over the Sierra Estrella mountain range. And these lights appear one by one, and they remained kind of stationary and then faded out one by one over the course of a few minutes. And some people will say that they just kind of blinked out. Others will say that they descended uh, behind the mountain range and that's why they disappeared. Uh, in the pictures and the videos, you can't really see the mountains um, since it's nighttime, uh, but that's where those lights were located. Uh, I'll be linking photos in the show notes, so definitely check those out. So at this point in the evening, hundreds of people were seeing these lights popping up if they hadn't already seen the V-shaped craft uh, flying by. And they wind up pulling out their camcorders and cameras, trying to take pictures and, and videos of this formation of lights Uh whether or not it was uh, one UFO or several. <laughs> and one important thing to consider why there were so many witnesses is that the, the Hale-Bopp comet was passing by the Earth and people would want to go outside to see it with their telescopes, binoculars, their camera equipment. You know, people are trying to take pictures and videos of this, you know, once-in-a-lifetime cosmological event. And it just so happens that there's all these people ready ready to document stuff in the sky. And if you've ever been to Phoenix, I mean, maybe it was different in the 90s or less busy, but whenever I've been there, Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport is right in the center of it all, and there's planes constantly taking off and landing. There's helicopters flying around. It's There's considerable air traffic. And anytime I've been there, I always kind of look up at the sky and like, oh, am I going to see the Phoenix lights? And then you just see all this air traffic flying around. So you would think that the people that live there full time uh, would be able to recognize objects in the sky as conventional aircraft. Uh, there was something different about this night and the objects that people were seeing. 
something definitely happened over the American Southwest and Phoenix uh, that night. And there's tons of photographic and video evidence of it, which is awesome. You know, it's like up to this point in history, that amount of evidence, I don't think had really been available to that extent compared to other UFO sightings and cases. Either way, it seems like this set of lights popping up was completely distinct from the V-shaped craft that had been traveling from Las Vegas up until this point. Nobody nobody else was describing the V-shaped craft as having that many lights. Maybe some were. Uh, or lights that would turn off and on. And in the videos you, you find online of this part of the evening, it, it really doesn't seem like it's this singular V shaped craft that so many people described. Like maybe it's the angle we're reviewing it at, but there are some videos floating out there that do have footage of this V shaped formation of lights moving through the sky during this whole incident. There's one guy that has a video up on YouTube, but he has it copywritten. So you can't share it. Otherwise, you know, there's going to potentially be some legal matters to deal with. So, you know, just to be safe, I'm not going to even link it, but you can search for it and it's on the internet. (laughs) So one of the initial witnesses in the Phoenix area was this cement truck driver, Bill Grainer. And he was in the middle of doing a late haul of uh, a cement load down from one of the mountains to the north side of the metro area. And he was sort of in the vicinity of Luke Air Force Base in Glendale. And he claimed to see something a little different than the V-shaped object that most people were describing. What he witnessed was a couple of bright lights in the sky that seemed separate from one another. And the way his story goes doesn't sound like these were related to the V-shaped object at all. They were kind of like independent lights and they definitely weren't the same lights as the uh, potential military flares that were over the Sierra Estrella mountain range to the Southern side of the city. And one of the lights turned out to actually be hovering above Luke air force base and Grainer claims that he saw three F-16 jets scramble and intercept this UFO that was hanging out above the base. And this object apparently wound up chasing one of the F-16s briefly and then shot up into the sky and disappeared, which is a pretty wild story. Uh, And before seeing these UFOs, uh, Bill was a self-proclaimed skeptic of the whole UFO phenomena, but he was quoted as saying before this, if anybody told me they saw a UFO, I would have said, yeah. And I believe in the tooth fairy. Now I've got a whole new view. I may just be a dumb truck driver, but I've seen something that don't belong here. I wish the government would just admit it. You know what it's like in the city right now. It's like having 50,000 people in a stadium, watch a football game, and then having someone tell us we weren't there. I mean, let that quote sink in for a minute, right? (laughs) Afterwards, this V-shaped or boomerang-shaped object that people had witnessed for hundreds of miles by thousands of people, uh, it was last seen over Tucson 
And then it traveled into Mexican airspace by about 10.30 p.m. that evening. And after that, the details kind of fall off. But we've got a lot to work with coming up. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. For listeners new and old looking for a way to support the Strangeology podcast, head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology. I offer a wide variety of benefits and perks, starting at some affordable monthly rates for as little as $1 per month. Some of the perks include a merch discount to my Etsy shop, VIP room discord access, early access to content, access to the members only Strangeology Beyond segments at the end of each of my shows, exclusive members only merch, and a lot more. And a quick shout out to my growing group of patrons who help keep the lights on at Strangeology. We've got Alex Dorgan, Alyssa, The Mystic Novelty Company, Appalachian Huntsman, MetaZoo Games, Greg Morrill from All the Weird, Sean Cologne, Miranda Jarnot, John Hickenbottom, Maureen Asmat, Gail Frederick, Adam Flynn, Connor Boyle, Ryan Holiday, Cassie Muratson, Anne Lutrzakowski Ford, Roxy Roberge, and Angie Fitz. So again, if you want to check out all of my tiers and what I offer, and want to support Strangeology, head on over to my Patreon. Who knows, you might find something you like. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, we're back. So now I want to read over a few eyewitness accounts from that night so you can get an idea of what people were seeing and how they were interpreting the event as it unfolded and how they reacted to it and how it affected their lives. These come from the Phoenix New Times newspaper uh, that did a retrospective a couple weeks ago about this event. So the first one here is from a Glendale resident named Connie. We were up around 20th Street and Greenway when my friend Linda had just left but came back minutes later and said, I see something in the sky. Is that the comet? I took a look and yeah, it wasn't a comet. I ran and got my binoculars and by then it was passing over us so I could see the lights and this distinct triangular batwing formation. It was just so odd. Another anonymous account comes from a pilot. I was a pilot with Southwest Airlines at the time and was living on the west side with my wife. We'd just left a restaurant, and I had her stop and pull off to the side of the road. I got out and kind of stood by the car, and it was kind of flying directly over us. I'm looking up and I'm trying to think of how I can explain because I'm going, well, maybe it's like a C-5, a large military transport. Then I go, no in-air collision lights, no strobes, 
and it's moving really kind of slow. They actually looked like can lights, like recessed into a surface. There were five, and I wouldn't say glowing. They just weren't very bright and didn't have any harsh incandescence. A 911 operator also has an account. Verley Nanaman from the Phoenix Police Department says this, It started out slow, and then, all of a sudden, we were getting lots of calls, and they were all regarding strange lights in the sky. The calls came in very steady for about an hour. Everyone seemed calm and was saying it was either the V-shape or five lights or seven lights over the Sierra Estrella Mountains. In the 24 years I worked there, we'd get an occasional call or two about strange lights, but nothing like that night. And then a resident from Tempe named John Vanderlyn says this, I was about seven and we were swimming in our backyard pool in Glendale with my dad. He glanced up and said, what the hell? We all looked up and you could see eight lights in a V and it looked like it actually blocked out the stars. It actually sparked quite a fascination with UFOs and extraterrestrials. This next story comes from thephoenixlights.net, and uh, I'll go over in just a little bit who the owner of that website is. There's a lot of witness testimony there, so I'm just going to go over one before moving on to another interesting story. So this is a story that comes from somebody that actually lived in New Mexico and saw very similar lights, if not the same lights, which is really interesting because a lot of the accounts talk about it going into Mexico after it left the Phoenix area. So perhaps there was more than one of these craft. It was just another Thursday night at the bus factory in Roswell, New Mexico. I was working the second shift, 3.30 to 12. The 10 o'clock break buzzer went off and myself and three co-workers stepped out the west door overlooking the north-south runway of the Roswell Airport. Looking to the west, we spotted five white round lights about two miles away. We asked each other, what is that? As our eyes adjusted, we could tell they were coming in our direction. We realized that this was a very large, boomerang-shaped, stealthy, silent black craft. The five lights underneath the craft were more like windows looking in the craft. As it flew right over the building, we could see no sharp edges. All of the edges were smooth, exactly like a boomerang shape. It was about a quarter mile wide and about 60 yards of width and 15 yards thick. It was about 500 feet up in the air and it didn't make any sound. We got to watch this craft for about four minutes and it was traveling about 30 miles per hour. After it flew over, we looked at each other and said, nobody's going to believe this. That Thursday night happened to be March 13th, 1997. It wasn't until we saw the news the next day that other people in Phoenix, Arizona saw the exact same thing. The details are etched into my memory, like I saw it last night. But it wasn't just regular people that witnessed the Phoenix lights that night. It turns out that Kurt Russell... Yeah, that Kurt Russell, the actor, witnessed the lights over Phoenix that night while he was flying. And Kurt Russell, on top of 
being an actor is apparently also a pilot. Of the many witness reports from that night, there was this unidentified pilot who was up in the air who called in about these lights, and nobody knew who it was. And during a 2017 interview for the second Guardians of the Galaxy movie with Chris Pratt, he revealed that he was the unidentified pilot who reported this strange aerial phenomena. And his story goes that on March 13th, 1997, he was flying his stepson to Phoenix that night from L.A. They were near Sky Harbor Airport, and he noticed these six lights and radioed in to air traffic control to clarify what else was in the air with him. And he and his son noticed these lights that were in the air. So Kurt radioed into air traffic control to clarify what else was in the air with him. And he was explaining that these lights looked like they were headed towards his plane. And the authorities apparently told him there were no other planes up there near him and that they didn't know anything about it. So he declared the lights were unidentified and then proceeded to land his plane at the airport. And afterwards, Russell dropped off his his stepson, who was going to spend time in Phoenix for a little bit, I guess. And he headed back to Los Angeles and completely forgot about the sighting. In interviews about it, he claims that he remembered being kind of dazed when he was looking at the lights. And I'm thinking to myself, did you have any missing time, Kurt? (laughs) Like, what happened? Years later, though, Uh, Before he realized that this was this whole huge UFO case, he came home one day and his wife, he's married to Goldie Hawn, if you didn't know, she was watching a documentary about the Phoenix Lights and it just so happened that when he came in, they were talking about this unidentified pilot who had called in on this particular night reporting strange lights in the sky. And he was like, oh, shit, that was me and went back in time through his old flight logs that he still had and confirmed that he was in the air that night over Phoenix and that he was he had to have been the pilot in question that had called in this sighting. So it's it's an interesting piece of uh, anecdotal evidence and Not that actors are, you know, always 100% credible, (laughs) but the guy's also a pilot, which I think makes it a little bit more legit because you have to be of sound mind. And he also had the paper trail and the flight logs from that night. So that's really interesting. All right. Now let's talk about the owner of the phoenixlights.net website, Dr. Lynn Kitai. She is one of the biggest proponents and voices for witnesses uh, of the Phoenix Lights. She was a uh, local Phoenix-based cardiologist, health educator. She was an NBC medical correspondent. She also claims that she had a near-death experience as a child, and she believes that she is able to use telepathy 
Uh, so there's there's a little bit of a woo aspect here. Uh, do with that information what you will. But I think with her collection of stories and putting out a documentary about it, it's kind of brought some things to light about this this particular case, which, you know, it's <laughs> a little bit important. Uh, and she was also one of the many witnesses to the lights that night and basically quit being a doctor so she could chronicle witness testimony and write a book and make her documentary about this incident. And she actually didn't come forward with her story and having a desire to pursue an investigation for seven years. So it was like 2004 when she finally came out with her story and decided to quit the whole being a doctor thing. <laughs> and the night of the incident, she reportedly tried calling Luke Air Force Base and Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport to find out what the lights were, but both of them cited not seeing anything on their radar and there was nothing up there. And it turns out that the Phoenix lights weren't her first experience or encounter with UFOs either. Apparently, she was visited by a set of light orbs, she claims, in 1995, just two years before the Phoenix Lights incident, outside of her home one night. And she was in the bathroom and looked out the window, and these three amber-colored orbs were apparently hovering 50 to 75 feet above her home in this kind of triangular formation. And then they disappeared in a way that she described as the lights were dimming down and then they just kind of blanked out. Uh, kind of like a light fader if you have one of those kinds of switches in your home. Anyway, uh, Kitai has a whole this whole website dedicated to her work regarding the Phoenix lights. So I'll link it in the show notes. There's a lot of information there, um, but if you want to check it out, definitely do. There's some interesting stuff there. Uh, a lot of photos, a lot of, a lot of witness testimony. Definitely check it out. Okay. Let's talk about the government. So as you know, there was a lot of ridicule within the government, uh, and people were shot down, made fun of, <laughs> and there was this former councilwoman and former vice mayor of the city of Phoenix who was the first government official to actually take this seriously and draw attention to the event, uh, this woman named Frances Barwood. And during a city council meeting, she had asked, after being approached by some witnesses, she asked during the meeting if anybody knew what the object was that flew over the city and if people could conduct an investigation to find out what it was, since so many people saw the thing. And the reaction was just met with this attitude of like, really? And then after the meeting, one of the deputy city managers came up to her and told her that she shouldn't have asked that question. Afterwards, Francis began to receive hundreds of phone calls from 
witnesses all reporting and describing the same thing to her. But shortly after, she was met with harsh criticism within the local government. The Arizona Republic newspaper also featured this political cartoon. Actually, I think there were were a couple that someone drew a caricature of her with a light switch on her forehead uh, and a button on her blazer that says, I love UFOs. And the caption for that particular comic said, those mysterious lights over Phoenix, they're on, but nobody's home. And yeah, like that was just one of many. And there was also harassment within City Hall as well. Apparently the mayor's office put up signs on her portrait in the main hallway. They were like, this is the UFO lady. And, you know, there's other city councilors and managers and stuff serving serving the city that have their portraits up as well. I'm sure you're familiar with that kind of thing if you've ever been into a government building. And they also printed up and handed out business cards with her name on it and a quote that said, speak into the tinfoil and she will hear you. <laughs> like, what the hell? And that wasn't the end of government officials poking fun at this event either. Like, I guess with the larger social attitude and the taboo surrounding UFOs and aliens, I can see like, sure, they don't want to acknowledge that potentially something from somewhere else penetrated U.S. airspace and we're defenseless against it. It's coming in with impunity. Nothing can be done about it or if it was some kind of top-secret military experimental craft and there's a cover-up, they downplay it, right? Or maybe it's just the the general uh, idea that, like, aliens aren't real. We're the only life in the universe, which is, I mean, think about that for a second. <laughs> it's pretty uh, preposterous and also uh, very arrogant, right? <laughs> so all these people are approaching Francis Barwood, and one in particular is pretty interesting. This witness named Richard Curtis got in contact with her. This man claimed to be a disabled veteran and an experienced videographer, had all sorts of camera equipment, and told Francis that he had clear video showing the outline of the craft that passed over Phoenix. Apparently, this was due to the uh, city lights reflecting off of it. Francis asked him to make a copy of the video and have it mailed to her. Curtis then touched base with her about two weeks after and asked if she had a chance to review the tape, but she never received it. And this is kind of where it gets weird. Curtis explained that he was on his way to make copies when two men dressed in black, showed up at his apartment building and knocked at his door. These two men were asking him to hand over the video that he was going to send to Francis Barwood. He asked them if they were from her office, and they said they were, but as it turns out, Francis Barwood didn't know anyone from her office that matched that description. There were only women in her office. She didn't have any men helping her out. So, you know, sounds like we've heard things like this before in previous episodes. Francis decided to look into Curtis's background 
and confirmed that he was actually a disabled vet and had professional video camera equipment at his disposal and lived where he said he lived, which was a veteran's home. But then when speaking to the facility manager of the location, they told Francis's people that one day he saw a black vehicle pull up and these two men dressed in black suits, wearing hats and sunglasses entered the building. So we've got men in black popping into the story. How about that? <laughs> this is wild because I, before I researched for this episode, I never knew about this side of the story of the Phoenix Lights. Uh, so, of course, these two men are described as looking identical and there's just something off about them. There was a, a minister available at this veteran's home who was milling about and he talked to these men dressed in black suits and they asked the minister where Curtis's apartment was and thinking nothing of it, the minister told them which floor and which room he was in. Like, man, I hope 25 years later there's better safety protocols for stuff like this when uh, strangers are coming to, to visit people in homes <laughs> because it sounds like anybody could could show up and mess around in there. Uh, but anyway, the manager and this minister said afterwards that they didn't remember seeing these men in black leaving the facility and they were in the lobby and there's like one way in, one way out probably. I'm sure there's some like fire exits and stuff, but when they looked out into the drive out front, the car that they came in from disappeared. So that's kind of like a pretty typical men in black story. Uh, and the last thing that Francis heard about Richard Curtis was that the facility had changed his meds, which led to him having a bad reaction, and now nobody knows where he is. <laughs> so clearly the videos, if they existed, were confiscated by the MIB, and now I'm wondering if there was a med change to shut him up or, uh, you know, take him out or if he has disappeared or what. <laughs> definitely, definitely suspicious, if you ask me. And it didn't end there. Sometime after her dealings with Curtis, Frances noticed that her phone was acting strange. So she called the local phone company and they came to inspect the lines inside and outside of her home. And this line worker came back to talk to her, but he refused to come back inside the house and instead went up to one of her windows and talked to her through that and explained that he had found out that her phone lines had been tapped by the central office, which means the government, and basically said, you didn't hear it from me and left. So it seems like somebody definitely was interested and had their, their eyes and their ears on Francis Barwood during this whole thing, which has got to be, you know, a pretty stressful thing to have to deal with. Like you got all these people, these witnesses coming forward with some potential evidence of this strange UFO that passed over a major city. And then there's men in black involved confiscating evidence from witnesses. And then your phone line gets tapped. 
It sounds straight out of a science fiction movie, but this stuff actually happened. Now, let's talk about Fife Symington, who was the governor of Arizona at this time. In response to all of the public interest about this event, he said he would investigate it and eventually held a press conference in the later part of 1997. So the press conference is happening. He's up on stage and speaking. He states that he knew who was responsible for this and to bring out the accused. And then they brought out this aide who was dressed up like a gray alien, like full garb, <laughs> mask and robe, like <laughs> glittery, whatever, and, and came out on stage. Uh, so essentially, this was just poking fun at the whole topic of UFOs and the Phoenix Lights and the people who witnessed them and just kind of trying to discredit the whole thing in a way, uh, which it makes sense from the government perspective, I guess, uh, if if Fife Symington didn't want to face scrutiny for acknowledging this taboo situation. I'm sure he was aware of the ramifications that came from acknowledging something like this. And that's at least what Francis Barwood had been going through. So after the press conference, uh, Barwood said that she had received phone call after phone call from witnesses who were angry and sad and disappointed that the governor was turning this whole thing into a farce. But in a twist of fate, it seems, it turned out that Fife Symington came out a decade later in 2007 and actually admitted that he too saw the strange V-shaped craft coming over uh, Pastua Peak on the north side of the Phoenix area. And he apologized for making light of the situation, but feared a growing public hysteria about it. And interestingly, during his time in office while he was governor, he did try to get information out of the military, but was stonewalled at every corner when he tried to dig anything up. Now, this is funny, like Kurt Russell, Symington is actually a pilot as well. And he was quoted as saying this, I'm a pilot and I know just about every machine that flies. It was bigger than anything I've ever seen. It remains a great mystery. Other people saw it. Responsible people. I don't know why people would ridicule it. It was enormous and inexplicable. Who knows where it came from? A lot of people say it, and I saw it too. It was dramatic. And it couldn't have been flares because it was too symmetrical. It had a geometric outline, a constant shape. So Symington has since advocated for further investigation into this incident, and he kind of disavows the explanation that the lights were simply military flares from an exercise that evening, and that the dramatically large V-shaped craft that he and so many other people witnessed was completely separate from any supposed test happening that, that night. And he's since appeared on different TV programs talking about the lights and his experience from that night. With so many witnesses to this event, a response from the local government would come to pass, but, you know, it was largely treated with this extreme 
ridicule and scrutiny and the slandering of certain individuals. And this was the, the status quo for this kind of stuff for years. You've got Project Blue Book, which ended in the late 60s under the direction of J. Allen Hynek, uh, who was on the case for two decades, and then the government put the kibosh on it, and despite all the renewed popularity of UFOs and aliens in the 90s, the sentiment from the public officials and the scientific community at large was still very much of the opinion that the extraterrestrial question, this phenomenon, it was all make-believe and hoaxes. So three years after the incident in the year 2000, the mystery behind the lights that were behind the Sierra Estrella Mountains was supposedly explained away by the National Guard as an Air Force exercise, uh, which involved dropping military flares, which is why nothing apparently showed up on the radar of local air traffic controllers from the airport. However, people that saw the craft knew that this was completely different and they didn't buy the flare story at all. So the official explanation is that these lights were dropped from these A-10 warthogs that came out from the Luke Air Force Base and they're dropping these military-grade flares, uh, which... You know, it might be the case for this other event, but some people believe that the military dropped them as a kind of diversion to make people in Phoenix, you know, a majorly populated area, that the UFO that was flying overhead, <laughs> maybe they distract them with these other lights and redirect their focus on the flares so that later on the government and the military could come forward and say, oh, that was just us, we were doing this exercise, nothing to worry about here. You know, I, I can see that as kind of like a plausible uh, scheme as to why they were dropped on that particular night when so many people were witnessing this V-shaped craft travel from Nevada all the way to like the southern border. <laughs> and there's other theories about the V-shaped craft being this top secret experimental aircraft that the military was testing out, perhaps some kind of enormous surveillance blimp. But then there are those who think that the flares were actually part of the unknown craft uh, based on the comparison of how the lights behaved versus, versus actual flares that the Air Force dropped after coming forward to kind of demonstrate it. But when you look at the comparison... The actual flares kind of seem a bit different than what we see in the Phoenix Lights footage over the city. But with the compressed old camcorder, handy cam footage that is available, there's probably a lot of lost detail, especially when filming in a low light situation. Uh, so who knows? So just what were the Phoenix Lights? Was the V-shaped craft from another world or was it some kind of top secret military experiment and what about the lights over the sierra estrella mountains were those really military flares or were they something else jim delatoso a ufo believer and advocate claimed to have done a spectral analysis of the imagery of the flare lights over phoenix 
And evidently, he came to the conclusion that his analysis proved they were not from a man-made source by looking at the red, green, and blue light values in the images of the Phoenix Lights versus known images of flares. But apparently, it's actually impossible to make a determination like that, according to experts. And the company who made the software that he was using... (laughs) So that that might be a little bit bunk. And besides aliens, there are a number of other theories. One is that it was a staged hoax done with Cessnas, uh, these small planes flying in formation. One witness came forward after the event and claimed that he viewed the Phoenix lights through his telescope and all he saw was a fleet of Cessnas, even though... There were hundreds of reports uh, stating the contrary, right? (laughs) You'd think that if they were small planes, at least a few other people would have realized that. Cessnas aren't silent, and they're pretty loud when they're flying low to the ground. You're not going to miss it, (laughs) especially during a landing. And there's also the, the issue of coordinating five to seven pilots who are willing to risk their licenses, fines, and jail time for crossing into a Class B airspace without clearance. So that theory doesn't really hold water. There's a similar theory also saying that it was helicopters flying in formation, but that's kind of in the same boat as the Cessna theory, in my opinion. Another theory is that what people were seeing was a B-2 bomber flying over which it is a v-shaped craft it's basically a flying wing that the u.s air force has had it in its arsenal since the 80s uh, b2s also don't have uh, five to seven big recessed lights in their hulls and they aren't one to two miles wide like don't get me wrong they're big planes but they're not that big and Like the Cessna and the helicopter theories, whatever the craft was that flew over Phoenix didn't get any kind of clearance to enter the airspace. One would think that the military would be required to do that and also wouldn't fly a plane dangerously low to the ground. And since it's stealth, yeah, it wouldn't really show up on radar, but people would still hear it. It's not a silent craft. And then there is the ball lightning theory, which this is kind of interesting. Uh, Lynn Kitai interviewed Robert Golka, who is one of the world's leading experts on ball lightning. He built the world's largest Tesla coil and is one of a handful of scientists in the world that has been able to recreate ball lightning in a lab setting. And according to Gulka, ball lightning, it's rare and requires a very specific set of atmospheric conditions for it to occur. And it helps to have storm clouds and strong electrical charges happening to create those conditions. And as it turns out, the skies over that part of the country on March 13th, 1997, were clear. So that theory is kind (laughs) of also doesn't really work. And then you've got the the run of the mill swamp gas, mass hallucination and weather balloon explanations, but you know, neither of those work for this scenario. 
<laughs> of course. And the last one I'll mention is probably the most ridiculous one, which is that they were nothing more than a flock of birds. Uh, Dr. Kitai interviewed a man who was a college student at ASU at the time, and during the Phoenix Lights incident, he and some other fellow astronomy students were on the roof of the science building at ASU, and they were observing the Hale-Bopp comet. And they suddenly saw this V-shaped craft come into view and float by. And they were all totally dumbfounded. So the next morning, he and his classmates, they're in class and they, they talk to their astronomy professor. And they tell him they saw this craft going over the city. And the professor told him that it was likely that all they saw was a flock of birds. <laughs> Isn't that just like the ridiculous, most ridiculous thing? Uh, now, I, I've seen night birds before, and they certainly don't look like a huge triangle craft in the sky, but that goes without saying. And that, my friends is the story of the Phoenix Lights and where I'm going to end it for now. It's definitely one of the biggest UFO stories of our time, and I had a great time doing this deep dive into it. I had no idea there were so many facets to this story. Uh, when I put together this episode, we had government officials being ridiculed. There was men in black, <laughs> all this stuff. So I hope you enjoyed it. It's always fun to cover UFO and alien stories and definitely something I need to do more of on the show. So definitely be ready for, for some more of that kind of stuff. <laughs> but anyway, thank you for hanging out with me today, wherever you're listening from. And thank you to those of you who like, share, and support this show. It means the world to me and it helps me out so much and it keeps me going. And if you're looking for a way to support the show, you can head on over to my Etsy shop. Uh, the link is in the show notes, or you can head over to my Instagram and tap the link tree link in the bio. That'll take you to a page that has all the pertinent links. I'm running a 20% off sale for spring for the last bit of March here. So don't miss it. If you want to grab some Strangeology merch, I've got a lot of stuff available. And if you haven't done so yet, go follow me on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter as well for daily updates and shorter form content on all things Fortean. I do some shorter content stuff there along with memes and, and fun stuff. So if you're looking for more Strangeology beyond just the podcast, <laughs> you don't want to miss it. You can also find me on YouTube where I post video content in addition to full show episodes there. And if you want to subscribe to my channel, that would be cool and appreciated as well. I've also got my blog and my mailing list over at strangeology.com. So be sure to sign up for that. Occasionally I'll send out some shop discount codes and other random updates from time to time. And if you want to leave me some feedback or shoot over suggestions, you can drop them on the contact page there. 
or at strangeologist at gmail.com or you can always DM me over on Instagram. I try to respond to everybody who sends me a message. All right, I think that just about wraps things up for my patron members. Make sure to stick around after the short break for Strangeology Beyond, where I'll be diving into the topic of the Falcon Lake incident. For everyone else, have a great rest of your week. Take care of yourselves and each other, and keep it strange. Well, that was a good time looking into the Phoenix Lights. Kind of makes me want to go out to the desert again and skywatch for some UFOs. Since we're on the subject of UFOs and...